Welcome, everyone, to episode 36 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and later on on the podcast today, we're going to be discussing the elephant movie, as my co-host Scott Harvey likes to put it. That's the live-action remake of the Disney animated original Dumbo. But before we get to that, with me today, as I've already mentioned, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? We're almost an entire month into our new podcasting format, one episode per week, doing one movie review. How are you feeling about it? Yeah, I'm feeling good about it. You know, every time I post the episodes now, I try to stress, you know, that I, we, we've had a shorter time limit. I think we were at like 71 minutes last time. I don't I don't know if we made it quite under an hour yet, but I, I wonder if today might be the day because uh, I'm not sure how much there is to say about the elephant movie, if we're being quite honest. Yeah, you know, it's, it's going to be the elephant movie like I predicted last week on the podcast. And I think it's going to be our shortest episode. We also just happen by chance to not have any new trailers to talk about and a rather or a somewhat limited news cycle. So that those sections are going to be shorter as well, which I think all, all just culminates. And I imagine what will be a shorter episode than, you know, us or Captain Marvel or any of the movies, uh, five, even five feet apart, right? Like even though. We weren't super positive on that movie. We had a lot to talk about in terms of the cystic fibrosis versus the acting versus the story. There was still a lot to I, talk about. I don't know, though. I have been looking up a lot of, you know, fan theories on Dumbo, you know, interpretations of the obvious metaphors, uh, you know, that are going on here. So who knows? Maybe we'll get into discussing some of those theories a little later. I, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I heard that the 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 fact that Farrier, Colin Farrell's character, came back with one arm was a deep, deep metaphor in terms of socioeconomic disparities in America. Yeah. So we could dive really deep on that later in the podcast. A really hellish look at the way that post-war economies really just take take the limbs quite literally off of uh, families who are trying to uh, pull the, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Yeah. I, and in a similar note, I heard it's an actually a critique of modern superhero movies as well with Michael Keaton as, as the bad guy. So it's critiquing the fact that these superheroes, Batman, et cetera, don't, don't care about the poor. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, that's that was pretty obvious to me. I don't think it really needed to be spelled out. But, you know, yeah, we can, you know, talk about that as well, of course. Honestly, I think we're done. I don't even think we need to talk about it anymore. We've done it already. <laughs> All right. Want to put a score on it? <laughs> yeah. All right, Scott. As I already yeah. mentioned today, we're going to be running the rule over the big eared elephants returned to the screen and full CG realized live action, something I know that you've been waiting for pretty much since before you were born. So let's get right into it. Helmed by Tim Burton, this movie loosely reimagines the 1941 Disney classic of the same name with a seemingly all-star cast, if, if we're going to be honest, Scott. Colin Farrell playing the one-armed war hero Holt Farrier, Danny DeVito playing the circus master Max Medici, Ava Green, a French-born trapeze artist, and Michael Keaton, the greedy theme park owner V.A. Vanderveer. Set just after World War I, the movie opens with Farrell's Farrier, that's a mouthful, returning to the Medici Brothers Circus after surviving World War I, though with only one of his arms, only to confirm what he already knew, and that is that his wife has passed away from the flu the previous year, and only to see the decline of the circus that he had left before the war. 
Under increasing financial pressure, DeVito's Medici takes a gamble on an Asian elephant who gives birth to the abnormally large-eared Dumbo, unknowingly stumbling across a potential gold mine. However, after being separated from his mother, after Mother Jumbo rampaged through the grounds, the remainder of the movie is a quest to reunite the flying elephant with his mother, led primarily by the farrier children, Millie and Joe, played by Nico Parker and Finley Hobbins, respectively. Scott, did this fantasy capture your imagination, potentially like the original, or did Tim Burton's vision fall short of the expectations that we have of Disney's live-action remakes? Well, Scott, I have to say, you know, first of all, uh, I think this movie is just not for me. And I think we should preface the the review somewhat by saying, you know, that I'm not the audience for this movie. I was honestly never going to be someone who was like really blown away by this movie because, you know, the part of my brain, you may call me a monster for this. I have a feeling a lot of people will. But the part of my brain, uh, or, you know, the part of most people's brains that is it there to, you know, develop emotional connections towards animals, robots, whatever, like, you know, th- these types of characters on screen is just not there. Uh, I've, I've never been able to really get emotionally connected to an animal, a robot, any of that type of stuff um, on screen, anything non-human, really. Obviously, Dumbo, like, is, a ve- is the very embodiment of a movie that asks you to care about, you know, a- an animal. And, and for the most part, literally the only emotional the the only thing that you anyone could emotionally cling to at all in this movie is the animal and so the fact that i just am really incapable of doing that in only in any but the most special of circumstances um really kind of made this a loser from the beginning for me but with that being said i think that this simply isn't a very good movie you know taking that out of it uh looking at it objectively uh this this simply isn't a very good movie at all whether you care you know can care about uh, animals or not, I think that uh, this movie is very silly and ridiculous. And obviously, I don't mean that the fact that the elephant flies. Obviously, like that's the point of Dumbo. Uh, that's not what I'm referring to. I think that a lot of the dialogue is just it's it's very tin eared and uh, it takes itself very seriously in some parts. Uh, and in other parts, its attempts to maybe install a little bit of humor really fall flat. And you know, I was. I won't say optimistic, but I was hopeful because we have someone like Tim Burton behind this. You know, Tim Burton is not like he wouldn't be called a safe director, I don't think. So I thought, you know, maybe he can put uh, an an original spin on this story, because I think what a lot of people were wondering going into this is, you know, do we really need this remake? Like the original is a classic for a reason. Do we really need a live action remake of this? Is it really you know, going to do anything different that, you know, we can't just watch the original for. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe Tim Burton can bring that. He, you know, he has, he, he does, certainly has a, a streak of originality about him. But I, this really feels like Tim Burton and Disney were kind of in a creative tug of war and that Disney kind of won out, uh, or at the very least, you know, they kind of gave him a line and said, here's how far you can go with this in terms of, you know, making it dark. Um, you know, but you can't cross this line, like, because it's still Disney. It's still, you know, we still have to sanitize this for a family audience, for a child audience. Um, and I think the result is just kind of a mess. Uh, and, you know, for this movie, I think to really succeed, for Tim Burton to have really done what he wanted to do, I'm sure, I think Disney would have needed to allow him to be a lot weirder with it, you know, like he has been you know, w- w- as he's known for doing in a lot of his movies, whether it's Ed- Edward Scissorhands or Sweeney Todd or anything like that. 
he definitely has a tendency to make very dark and odd movies, you know, that also have a streak of humor about them and hard as well. Uh, and I think that this movie was really just kind of missing all of those things. Uh, and the actors, f- for my money, didn't really um, help him out very much. Uh, Danny DeVito is really the only person I think who comes away unscathed here. He's pretty well cast. But Colin Farrell, you know, no, no emotional depth whatsoever to his character. I think Eva Green, as she does in very many, in a great number of movies, really overacts here. And Michael Keaton is really just in a completely different movie. Um, like I don't, I don't really know what they told him that he was doing, but I, I somehow I don't think that he realized he was playing someone in the in the Dumbo movie because it feels like he he's maybe he's in the movie that Tim Burton wanted to make and nobody else was really on board because of. The, the way that uh, the, the limits, the limitations that Tim Burton was given in, in creating his vision and putting it on screen with this movie. But uh, yeah, overall, I can't find too many good things to say about this movie. Unfortunately, uh, I do think Danny Elfman has an excellent score. That's probably the best thing about this movie. Um, it really uh, has sort of the magic and wonder in it that I really wanted from this movie, but I think it's missing and installs a lot of different elements that, you know, weren't in the original animated movie that just kind of complicate things and also feel very hypocritical coming from Disney. And we'll talk about that, I guess, a little bit later. But overall, yeah, this even despite my, uh, you know, obviously I had preconceived notions going into it. I had bias going into it just because I don't, you know, I can't can't get connected to animals. And I'm I freely admit that. But I did look at this from an objective standpoint. And I think even those who you know, are, are optimistic going into this, who love the original, I don't think are going to be very pleased with the, what we have here. I think what this movie has to offer in terms of the the emotional aspect, which was one of the first points that you made, re- really, if, if you can't connect with Dumbo and Jumbo, which is Dumbo's mother, and you can't connect emotionally maybe, maybe with Danny DeVito's character, you're not going to really get much out of this movie. For some reason, I don't know what it is, something about the Farriers, they just are... As wooden as can be. I mean, Scott, I know that we joked about this after we both saw this movie yesterday, but I, I honestly don't know how they, they could find less emotion in their child actors. The deadpan delivery of some of these performances was was awe-inspiring in all of the wrong ways in terms of, of child acting. And, you know, I, I don't mean to be too critical. They're, they are young actors and actresses in their career, in their respective careers. And, but they should have been the emotional connection point for someone like you who maybe doesn't always connect with, uh, in this case, of course, it's, it's, an, it's a baby elephant. But, you know, in, in past episodes of the podcast, we talked about, you know, the Transformers line when we did a short review of, of Bumblebee that, you know, that movie wasn't necessarily for you because you can't connect with it. And in similar movies of, of that ilk. And I think that what was really lacking and what we should have been able to feel like, you know, maybe take take Mary Poppins Returns from last year. What what if this were a better movie, you would have been able to connect with those children emotionally. Right. But instead, what you get is you get this relationship between Dumbo and Jumbo. And then you get the financial hardship of a character like Danny DeVito's character, which is a different, a completely different flavor of emotional connection. Right. Like it's not to say that you can't connect with that person emotionally, but it's probably not the childlike sense of wonder that you came for in terms of emotional resonance and emotional connection because Colin Farrell's performance, although I I do still like Colin Farrell as an actor and I will still go see his movies and for the time being, we'll still think positively about him as an actor. This performance doesn't do much for me. The same goes 
for Michael Keaton because not that he underperformed or yeah, quite <laughs> maybe the he overperformed actually, but he, yeah, he he just like Ava Green seemed to be cast in a in a different movie, and and I know for Michael Keaton it's slightly different than Ava Green who who you know you put it that she often overacts in movies. I haven't seen that much of her to be honest, besides Casino Royale, so I can't really speak too much. But Michael Keaton felt out of place in this movie. I mean. It, a whole section of this movie, to be honest, felt out of place. The weird Jurassic Park turn that this movie took towards the end was just rather bizarre, in my opinion. I didn't really understand it. And then, of course, for those of you who have seen it, there is a cameo from Alan Arkin, who, I mean, God, I, I don't know what they paid him to come into the movie for three minutes and completely phone it in. I have, I mean, I have no idea. I don't know what they were planning to get out of him. I can't imagine that they made any mo- any money and any got any butts in seats because Alan Arkin was in this movie for three minutes. So I just don't know what they were thinking from that point. That being said, I personally did really connect with Dumbo. I thought that the CG animated version of Dumbo was extremely cute. I thought that the most powerful part of this movie was this elephant's connection with its mother. I thought I the most part, the, the part of the movie that left the most to be desired was this elephant's relationship with the children, because that again, I, I just can't repeat uh, overemphasize this. I can't emphasize this enough that that was the part of the movie that was just the most lacking because it should have been the part of the movie that was the most powerful, in my opinion. And I found that extremely frustrating. And as much as I've kind of laid blame a little bit on these child actors, I also want to lay, lay blame squarely on the shoulders of Aaron Kruger, who wrote the screenplay for this film. Also, the screenplay writer, I must add, of two of the Transformers movies, oh my gosh. two of the worst Transformers movies, I will add. And not a, not a good performance here. I, this is one of the worst scripts I've seen this year. I can't remember too many worst scripts from last year either. This is a really bad screenplay. Scott, I, I was really displeased with some of the lines. Not only were they pretty delivered pretty hollowly, if that's a word, but the, the lines themselves were felt empty completely. And I thought it was pretty disappointing in that aspect. That being said, uh, of course, as well, I, I've mentioned that I, I did buy into the relationship, uh, or sorry, the CG animated Dumbo and that and his his relationship with his mother. And I also really loved Danny DeVito's character. I thought Danny DeVito did an excellent job. But besides Danny DeVito, I don't think any of these actors or actresses have too much to write home about. Yeah, I mean, as far as the script goes, like there there are times when they look at this situation and they treat it with like the gravity of a DCEU movie. And it just feels ridiculous for, uh, you know, a movie that is about a flying elephant. Like, okay, let's, you know, we can take it seriously. That's fine. But like when you have the like child actors uh, who are delivering a line, like it's Mrs. Jumbo. Like, how can you say the line? It's Mrs. Jumbo. Like with, with a total, with a straight face, like, even something as simple as that, I think, just kind of is where the movie goes wrong. And, you know, we, the first scene where Dumbo is, is flying or, you know, eventually ends up flying where he's being ridiculed by these people who are attending the circus. Like, it just feels so stupid. Like, are, are, do we really think that people at the circus are going to get so upset and so up in arms because the elephant has big ears that they're going to literally start chanting like Dumbo's? Now, I mean, it's, you know, it's not an SEC football game, okay? It's a circus, and it just feels like it's really kind of insulting at some points. And I understand it. It's a kid's movie. You have to paint with broad strokes, but uh, I think they really just sort of missed the boat on what sort of tone they really wanted to take on with this movie. I think that there were some scenes toward the end with Michael Keaton's character, which we can talk about later. I mean, it's a spoiler, but I mean, honestly, Scott, who, who gives a shit about these spoilers yeah. for this movie? I mean, <laughs> honestly, um, like... There are scenes with him that I'm just like, wow, this guy is, is stupid. Like, this guy is so dumb. 
if you didn't, if, you, if for that. some reason you took this character seriously before, I don't know how you could take him seriously now. I, it's just it's very strange. You know, I'm going to, I'll be the first to raise my hand and admit, like, look, this is a different time. This is set in 1919. I have no idea what going to a circus in 1919 was like, but it's not a time I want to live in if this is how people went to the circus. And the, the, I mean, maybe the the most glaring moment of all, the fact that at the end of the movie, Michael Keaton's entire amusement park is burning down and all he cares about is this elephant. Like he's running around like, that's my elephant, get your hands off my elephant. While his entire amusement park isn't like this thing he has built his livelihood off of is literally burning to the ground and all he cares about is this elephant. I'm like, at a certain point, I'm like, just give it up, dude. Yeah, he spends like a large portion of the. I mean, we're sorry, we're jumping in pretty deep here for the general impression section of the podcast. But like, he he spends the entire like second third of the movie talking about like I came from nothing. I built from the ground up this amusement park. I'm a self made man. I'm I'm top of the world basically. And in this fit of rage, he decides to no longer care about his amusement park. Surely the <laughs> immolation of his amusement park is not worth the elephant. And you, you'll get no disagreement from me there. Capitalism, <laughs> right, <Scott>. baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and all this, of course, is a metaphor for the cap, cap for capitalism and the socioeconomic disparity between the rich and the poor. So there I you mean, go. We, we joke, but really, like, it does feel very silly. The because they do try to have sort of a veiled critique of you know of capitalism, almost in a way, and like sort of in the same way that Mary Poppins Returns did. You know, to your point, by with the Colin Farrell char- or Colin Firth character you know, as the evil nefarious banker. But I think it's even more sort of vapid in this movie coming from Disney, you know, who obviously is like at this point in time, like the epitome of, uh, you know, capitalism and, and great uh, um, amassing great amount, great amounts of wealth. So it, it really falls on deaf ears and kind of shocking, honestly, that that Disney would try this sort of commentary considering where they stand in the entertainment world right now. Yeah, and to be fair, to be fair to this movie, I, I'd imagine that if Tim Burton fully had his way, I think he'd probably lean more into that critique. Whatever his design was, I, I imagine that Disney probably tempered that a little bit. You know, maybe I'm totally off on this point, but I'd imagine that Tim Burton, although also an example of someone who is of high socioeconomic status. That being said, I, I'd imagine that he would be interested in creating this social commentary, right? But of course, if you're being if it's being distributed by Disney, they are the center in this in this situation, right? Like they are the the people, especially most recently, but also you know over the seventy eight years of the since this movie came originally came out, and of course it is a loose remake, right? But creating amusement parks to take advantage of people's awe and sense of wonder and leverage people who come from different circumstances and don't know the value of what they have, right? Of, of course, it's slightly different when you actually put it in the context of Dumbo and what that means, et cetera, et cetera. But th- that being said, I, I imagine that whatever critique Tim Burton might have designed, I can only think that it was watered down by Disney. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to know what sort of creative discussions went on here, but it definitely feels like Tim Burton was probably the loser in most of these discussions. Okay, let's dive a little bit deeper. First off, uh, in terms of characters, we have the Farriers. I've mentioned them already, but you have Holt Farrier, played by Colin Farrell. And then, of course, you have Millie, played by Nico Parker, and Joe, played by Finley Hobbins. They survive the widowed, Holt, uh, the, the widow, uh, which is Holt, and you know their mother had died of flu the previous year. Scott, 
I've mentioned how these two children should have been the emotional resonance in this movie that was missing from the human perspective. What did you think of these characters? What did you think of these performances? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to crap on the kids too much more. I think you kind of said, you know, what what I uh, I echo your thoughts. You know, I think that very wooden delivery um, with their lines. And I understand, you know, child acting is hard, but, uh, you know, they probably could have done a little bit better. Uh, and that's all I'll say about that. Colin Farrell, not someone I'm a huge fan of as an as an actor. Um, you know, I think that people have rightfully made a big deal in the past about casting decisions. Like, you know, when Matt Damon gets cast as an Asian guy in the great wall, uh, I think that it's right to make a big deal about that, but I don't know why no one's making a big deal about the fact that we have an Irishman doing a Kentucky accent here, which I think, or I mean, what he, what he, Seems to be a Kentucky accent. I think both you and I would say that it's a uh, it's very dodgy uh, at best. I think that um, you know there are p- plenty of fine actors. I mean, why couldn't Billy Bob Thornton have played this role? I'm sure he would have done a much more convincing Kentucky accent for starters. But the the backstory of uh, I mean, they never do anything to make you care about this character really. I mean, they tried to be like, oh, you know, his wife died. They make that point about 15 times, and I'm like. You know, we've said this a billion times before, but, you know, there there has to be more to it than that. Like, you can't just because your wife died, like, I'm sorry, like, that's that sucks. But like, there has to be more for me to care about you. Your wife can die and you can still be a horrible person. Like, uh, I, I need to know more. And I think that, you know, the fact that he comes around to love this elephant uh, just didn't feel very believable to me, considering, you know, he starts out. You know, when they're, when they're telling him, oh, the elephant can fly, all this stuff, they're, they're just, he's dismissing them. He's kind of just like one of the circus patrons. Uh, and I think that his shift in terms of how he acts towards the elephant to the point where, you know, at the end, they're, they're trying to reunite him with his mother, free Dumbo, basically. It didn't feel very believable at all. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, as much as I was invested myself in the Dumbo Jumbo being reunited... Yes, I I knew from the script that these that these people cared. But like honestly, like from the from the delivery of the lines and the way that they acted these parts, if you just couldn't understand the words that were being said, if it was being spoken in a different language and it wasn't subbed, you'd have no way of knowing that that like these people cared about this elephant. Like you just wouldn't. I just found it surprising. Like I don't understand, Scott. I just really don't because there's just such a missed opportunity here. Yeah. For example, like. I would have been interested to see like, okay, let's say we have this father who who comes back from war and, you know, this is probably going too far with it. But like, what if, you know, he treats the elephant in this way, but it's also a metaphor for how he treats his kids. And so the kids have to learn to rebel against their abusive father or something while at the same time, you know, finding companionship with this elephant. I mean, that would have been more interesting, right? Like that would have been something that Tim Burton maybe would have been more interesting in trying. But I think because he's kind of caught in two minds here, uh, it just feels like a mess. I think that that's that's probably all right. And but you know what? So, something that I am a little bit more positive on in this movie, Scott, and I'll swear by it, and that's Danny DeVito's performance. He plays he plays one of the ringmasters, uh, particularly the the one that is more prominent in the early, we'll say the first third to two thirds of this movie, and that's Max Medici. Uh, of course, there's another ringmaster as well who we've referenced already, and that's Michael Keaton who plays V.A. Vanderveer. But, Scott, I'd love to start with Danny DeVito because he's the bright spot in terms of the acting in this movie, in my mind. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think this is kind of a slam dunk casting him in this role. Um, I, you know, I think 
putting Danny DeVito as the you know master of ceremonies for a circus kind of right up his alley. Honestly, he brings a he brings a good comedic spark to the role, which I think is not to say that I laughed really any. I think there's really pretty much humor here, but I think that uh, that was being made here, or, or you know, who wasn't at the very least wasn't sleepwalking in the way that it feels like a lot of the other actors were. Um, I think he really at least did give it one hundred percent, and I think that. Because of that, he comes out of it unscathed. I don't know that I would, you know, rave about this performance as being amazing or anything, but I think it does stand out in this movie for sure. Yeah, it, it certainly stands out relative to the other performances, and and I, it, it's impossible to separate it out completely and and come at it not thinking about the other performances in this movie in my mind. But you know, maybe I'm even more positive on this performance than you are because i do think that not i mean not only is it a slam dunk cast and i would totally agree with that danny devito this is right up his alley but you know he doesn't phone it in he's not johnny depp in crimes of grindelwald he gets this role that fits his his persona well and he acts it extremely well in my opinion i think that like i mentioned already but i don't want to repeat myself too much but i think he carries this movie for certain segments of it where, you know, you're not getting too much of Dumbo or we're still learning a little bit about Dumbo, but Danny DeVito's character in a different, in a completely different way, right? You feel a connection with that character and he acts it really well. You enjoy, you enjoy his lines. You may not always laugh at said lines and, and maybe you're not always supposed to laugh at those lines, but you enjoy the way he delivers them, especially relative to the rest of the cast. And I think that he really picks this movie up from its lowest points. And, and, you know, even if ultimately, doesn't necessarily come out as positive but that's going to be for you to judge he does his best to do his part yeah i mean i, I can't disagree with that uh, he's definitely the best thing here awesome and then there's the other ringmaster michael keaton scott what did you think of this you've, you've already mentioned him briefly already yeah it's just a weird performance like i said it feels like maybe he he was trying to he was in the movie that tim burton wanted to make mm-hmm. a lot of his line readings are so over the top and so like mustache twirling villain like that you would expect you make like, me feel like a child again really i mean yeah yeah i mean basically and there's really no subtlety to the character whatsoever and it's obvious that he's just sort of the stand-in for oh well here's the here's capitalist greed like here's the evil rich guy which you know like i've said i think is a little strange coming from disney he's he's basically an evil walt disney i know well i mean i've already mentioned that i think this is what like a watered down take on it but i am just shocked that Disney would even let a character like this exist in one of their movies. Call it evil Walt Disney, call it what you want, but this character seems a hell of a lot like Walt Disney to me, regardless of, of whether Walt Disney was a better person than V. Van Der Veer. I would be interested to know, though, if he would be willing to let Disney World burn to the ground while, while he was chasing after an elephant. You know, Disney World, maybe not, but, you know, Disneyland, you never know. Yeah, no, I mean, I've never been but Disneyland, but, uh, you know, it's, it's California. It can't be that great. Neither have I. I was just making a joke. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, Michael Keaton, he seems like he's on another playing field, similar to how I felt about Ava Green. It's not that I think he does a bad job. Uh, I don't think he does a good job, to be clear. It's not that I think he does a bad job. I just don't know what he's doing, right? Like relative to the first 50 minutes of this movie that I saw, I don't know where all of a sudden we get a, a character like Michael Keaton is playing. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, we're introduced to Ava Green's character, who's Colette, who's this French trapeze artist. I don't really know what she's doing either. Like, at least she's a you know a nice character that I can like her. Which makes me wonder, like, how did she get become the partners with Michael Keaton? Because he's so obviously like nefarious from the very beginning. Like, I don't know. They they seem at odds with each other. Yeah, I, I mean, if, if if I'm trying to be a little bit fair, I think that 
probably when he recruited her, he probably wasn't this big shot theme park owner. He was probably in his younger days. That's just the vibe that I got from the backstory that was being kind of the the exposition that was happening from Colette's character. He he discovered her. But I, I imagine what that discovery meant was he was still someone like Max Medici, maybe even in an earlier stage than Max Medici. And so in that sense, I don't nec- I don't necessarily have the same complaint, but I hear what you're saying, and I think that this story leaves a lot to be desired in ter- in terms of explaining where these char- some of these characters come from, and also what their motives are. Yeah, you can say that again. I mean, I don't know if you have anything else to add about Ava Green uh, or uh, slash Colette here, but if not, we can move on to Dumbo. Yeah, like I said, I think she just kind of overacts it. This is not the first time I have seen her do this in a movie, see colon white bird in a blizzard or, you know, don't see it because it's a really bad movie and she's bad in it. All right. Yeah. So Dumbo Scott, you've mentioned that you don't connect with these CG animated animals or just animals in general. I do. Do you have any soft spot at all for this elephant or or is your heart cold? I mean, there were a couple moments that I appreciated. Okay. I'm not completely soulless. Like I think the first time that he flies was was fine. I mean, I I enjoyed that as much as you can enjoy anything in this movie. I also think that the very end of the movie, the last shot with all the elephants, okay, that was kind of cool. Like I I the CGI looks really good in that scene. I don't think it looks really spectacular in any of the other scenes, but Wow, I thought I thought that you would take this last scene to task cuz this is a prime example of something that's 4 minutes of completely unnecessary extra movie time. That's fair, but at the same time, I for some reason we saw like disparate running times for this movie online. So I was expecting it to be a lot longer. So maybe that's why uh, it didn't feel like as long to me. I, why I didn't mind the extra three or four minutes that yeah are probably are kind of tacked on. But like I said, it was a cool CGI moment. Um, you know, I was taking whatever moments I could get out of this movie, and I think that was one of them. Yep. I mean, it is what it is. I really liked Dumbo. I thought that the relationship with Jumbo is the most powerful part of the movie. Not that it should have been the most powerful part of the movie, but it ultimately just kind of, it kind of left it to be, uh, you could make some <laughs> corollary here that there's no a- actual acting involved with, with their, with their performances. So maybe that's why they're the most powerful part of the movie, but that is what it is. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, the, the last part was the CG animation was really cool, but I was like, well, that's five minutes of my life. I'll never get back. It was cool to watch, but like, I didn't need that at the end of this movie. And I, I am really happy. Also, I have to say, I mean, the last scene, it really felt like it was like out of a Disney nature movie that I would have much rather seen than this. I was expecting some like Morgan Freeman narration to come in all of a sudden. Uh, Can we also talk about the fact that so at the end of the movie, there's a circus sequence where they like go through the circus, the new circus, right? They've they've rebuilt the circus, basically. And the daughter, who is like very interested in science, has this whole sort of exhibit that's you know to her like her own now it's like her hall of uh, science or something like that or whatever and we go into it and they're watching like a video of dumbo flying or like it, there's this, there's a picture of dumbo flying on the screen and what actual science is involved in this like this is the one part of the movie where it cannot be explained by science okay and yet somehow you like the most scientific person here who's like oh i you know i want to be like a scientist like the circus life isn't for me is in here talking about flying elephants as if it's somehow some somehow some kind of like natural scientific phenomenon. I'm going to I'm going to start my response to this by saying I agree <laughs> that they could have chosen a different topic for her to be talking about. However, I think the science element is probably the projector. 
I think the scientific discovery is the fact that you can like play these 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 filmed shots on a yeah. projector. I mean, That's that just wasn't clear about. enough. I don't think. Oh, totally. You're no, probably hundred percent agree. That. And it's also like if they wanted it to be clear, they probably should have like I don't know have her talk about science <laughs> rather than applying. Have out. her turn on the projector and everyone go. Oh, I mean, even that would have been fine. Did you want to put the plot on blast any more than we already have? I mean, it just feels very predictable. You know, I've said my problems with, I think, sort of the social commentary that they try to, you know, integrate here. But, I, you know, notwithstanding sort of the hypocrisy of it, I think it's just very predictable. Like, oh, we're going to have an evil, you know, guy and he's evil. He's rich and evil. Like his his evil power is that he's rich. And it's like it doesn't feel it's not fresh in any way. It's very predictable. And like even, you know, like I said, we saw this in Mary Poppins Returns last year, like Disney just needs to find a new kind of villain because the rich guy ain't doing it anymore. Doing it anymore. This this is a, this is a story of two movies, right? Like one one movie in this is that like that you have Holt Ferrier coming to terms with post World War One, his family and, and his place in the world, right? Which to your point, I, I actually I don't, this isn't directly your point from earlier, but I think it relates to your point earlier. Like that's an interesting concept. That's an interesting concept you could explore. You you talked about how. How he treats like how he treats Dumbo might be a metaphor for how he treats his children and they have to find companionship, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's an interesting concept for a movie. And I also think that the second idea of a movie in in this, you know, hour fifty minute runtime, hour fifty-five minute runtime is interesting. I think that this other movie is uh, you know, the kind of classic tale of, you know, X person is separates you know, two family members and there's this massive quest to reunite the two and this emotionally powerful moment. But the combination of these two things, honestly, Scott, it's a, it's generous to call it half-assed. Like, honestly, it's, it's generous to even call it that. It just feels like it doesn't even come close to delivering on either movie that is sort of um, teased in, in this runtime. And it's, it's just very disappointing. Yep, that sums it up, I think. All right, well, let's sum it up with your favorite scene from Dumbo. So I want to talk about one moment, which I, I'm surprised it hasn't come up yet as we're sort of roasting the ridiculous moments in this movie, because I think this is sort of the height of ridiculousness in this movie, for lack of a better word. And yeah, that's probably why I appreciate it the most, because it's just so like random that I couldn't help but just chuckle. And that's, of course, when we have a great cameo from the great Michael Buffer, uh, who shows up and uh, proclaims at the start of the circus uh, at Dreamland uh, let's get ready for Dumbo, you know, in his classic voice instead of... He like, does it twice. Yeah, yeah, let's get ready to rumble. It Again, like I said, it was just a wonderfully random moment. And honestly, I wish a lot of the rest of the movie would have had some similarly, like, sort of oddball charms to it, which I think, you know, we see in a lot of Tim Burton movies. But again, we're lacking here. Yeah, I think that there's a couple different scenes one of which or the well i should say one flavor of which you've referenced already and that's of course dumbo's first flying scene there are a couple elements of where you get the wonder of dumbo flying and the cuteness of the elephant combined with the wonder of him flying and also being reunited with his mother uh there's one particular scene probably it's not it's not yet dreamland but the first time he flies in the circle i really enjoyed that and he sprayed the kids with water who were taunting him which i appreciated Bullying doesn't pay. That that was yeah. That was a nice little karmic moment. I guess I I agree. I I didn't hate that part. <laughs> didn't hate that part. High praise. <laughs> All right, Scott. Let's put a score on it. I'm sure it's going to be really high. Yeah, three I'm sorry. I I you know I I tried to have as much of an open mind as I could, but I think even on the most objective of terms, and I think you see this from Scott's review, right? Like Scott obviously 
comes into this with considerably less baggage than I do, <laughs> and he still didn't enjoy the film. So I think that says all you need to know about Dumbo right there. You know, yeah. maybe wait till it comes out on VOD and play it for your kids, but there's no reason for you to take them to the theater and suffer through this one. Yeah, I'm not even sure that I can recommend this on a, on a, on a plane, to be honest. But I'm going to I'm not going to be too far higher than this, but I am a little bit higher. Wow. I, I say that with a nice tone, <laughs> but it's still 3.8. So I'm a 3.8. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. That's over. Thank God. Uh, we'll, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll be discussing this past week's news. We'll be right back. Still better than Jurassic World. Yeah, well. Yeah, that's true for me, too. All right, we'll be right back. (laughs) Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, a little bit of news this past week, and I imagine this will be the the topic of conversation here that that drives most of the conversation for this segment, and that is that Apple unveiled their new streaming service coming this later this year, I should say. I don't think they gave an explicit date, and that's Apple TV+. Plus. Scott, what was your reaction to this unveiling? Well, I think we all knew that this was coming, right? And I think with you know streaming being one of the top innovations in media of the last, you know, decade or so, uh, Apple would have fallen very far behind um, if they had not, you know, come up with something of this. And, you know, it it does kind of feel strange, you know, that we're talking about Apple sort of being a follower rather than a leader on this forefront when I think, you know, when you talk about the technology of the last 15 to 20 years, Apple's kind of been the dominant force of sort of innovating. But I think here they're really sort of following the example of, of course, Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime, all that a lot of other outlets have set. And you know there are there are a lot of interesting names that have been linked to this new service um, to various projects. You know we don't really know very much about many of the projects yet, other than that Brie Larson project which we talked about recently. And so I mean I think obviously you know this could be something interesting down the road, but from what it, you know it seems like from what people are saying uh, after the launch it seems like this is, you know, a few years off before it gets to a real place where it might achieve some dominance and might really compete with some of the big hitters in this space. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the predominant emotion or sentiment that I've seen and also my own reaction is mostly just being underwhelmed by this announcement. I think that they announced a lot of things. They definitely gave some more clarity beyond just that Brie Larson TV show that we talked about. I mean, you have Steven Spielberg shorts. I don't remember, like Amazing Stories or whatever it's going to be called. You know, there's some like Jennifer Aniston might be involved in something and there's going to be some sort of like daily news show or maybe weekly news show. Unclear to me exactly what it was. But a lot of it seems to be directed at the TV market, which isn't inherently wrong. There's plenty. I mean, if not the majority of what's being produced for in terms of original content, on these platforms like Netflix, like Hulu, our TV show. Let's be really clear about that. But to me, I felt underwhelmed. I just felt underwhelmed by not only the TV shows themselves that they were talking about, besides, again, besides the Brie Larson TV show that we already know about, I just felt underwhelmed by the content that they introduced. And I felt underwhelmed by Steven Spielberg being on stage (laughs) after all of his critiques about Netflix, about them not being eligible. Look, I understand that him supporting Apple's TV plus product is not is inherently not 
movies, but I'm just really surprised he put his face next to a streaming service after he took some pretty lethal shots at Netflix. I'm not saying that undermines his credibility, but I just think it's an, it's an interesting juxtaposition. juxtaposition. It's, a, it's that direction that raises a few eyebrows for me. So, and it thoroughly made my mind up that I don't need this service right now. Like, yes, it's going to suck to miss out on this real Larson TV show. And maybe I'll do whatever free trial they have to binge the show and then, and then shut it down. But until different content comes out, I'm just not going to be that interested. And to your latter point about it being two or three years out, I think that's probably right. Like, you know, Netflix in its early days took a long time to really take hold and to really start producing original content that, really interested people. I mean, House of Cards was their first show that really captivated people. But even after its first season, there were several years before it started consistently producing content that drew people and that captivated people with Netflix's service in terms of original content. The difference, of course, is that Apple, to again, to your point, is a follower, not a leader in the space in terms of a streaming service. So Netflix had the luxury of being pretty much the only player in terms of original content. Yes, there was some minor competition from Hulu at the time in terms of streaming, but Netflix had the luxury of being the only player, the only streaming player producing original content in the market. And Apple's in a market that's full of of other streaming services that are producing original content. So until they start producing something that's really compelling, I don't I just don't think that their service is going to be that captivating to people. Yeah. I mean it I just can't get excited about like all of these new TV series to your point. Like I, I, what I want is some more original movies, right? Because there's just so many TV series right now and it's not as consumable as a movie. But whereas like, I think, you know, we saw with Netflix, they're putting out some really interesting original movies. Like we've already talked about three different Netflix movies this year between Velvet Buzzsaw, Fire and High Flying Bird. Um, All of which I think, were interesting, although some some were more successful than others. Um, and I think th- th- they're just way, much more consumable than these TV series at this point, although I do think Netflix has produced some great original television series. I think for the average person, it's much easier for me to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to watch this two-hour movie than it is to, okay, I'm going to watch this TV series that you know, has 10, 12 episodes in a season, you know, and we're going to be dropping eight of these TV series at the same time. Like, I just can't really get excited about it, regardless of who's linked to it. Yeah, agreed. And especially when you already have that coming from Netflix and you already have the promise of that coming from Disney. Both of those services, even though we don't have yet a very clear sense of what's coming on Disney Plus, just the teases that we've seen are more interesting than the full unveiling of what Apple had to offer in my Mm -hmm. mind. And for people like you and me, there's a there are limits to what we have time to consume, right? And that's true for other people as well. Maybe people's situations are different and other people consume more TV, more streaming TV shows than we do because, of course, we spend a lot more time in the movie theater. That being said, like there are limits. And to me, the vast majority of people, not only are, do they have limits in terms of what they can consume in terms of a time perspective, but they also have limits in terms of what they consume in terms of a monetary perspective. And I just can't see people spending a lot of money on this service yet. We'll see, especially with the Disney also launching later this year. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see particularly how these two new players stack up against each other. But right now, I'm definitely more encouraged by what Disney is uh, pitching. Absolutely. Between the, the promised Star Wars movies and TV shows from you know The Mandalorian being the forerunner of that, as well as the MCU TV shows, which Kevin Feige has talked about them being much more closely and tightly integrated into the movie universe. So what we're seeing in the theater will also be more tightly connected to what you're seeing on Disney plus, as opposed to, you know, what's been happening with the Netflix Marvel shows 
or Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on broadcast television, things like that. They're, not that those things aren't also in the same universe. They've never said that they aren't, but that you will see more clear lines drawn connecting the two things. And that, from a consumer perspective, as someone who's interested in that, that's much more compelling than what Apple has to offer right now. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, so that's Apple TV Plus's new streaming service coming out later this year. We'll ha- I'm sure we'll be learning more about it as well as what content will be coming to it. Scott, we've talked in the past about we are interested in this Brie Larson television show, and if it's possible, I do want to watch that. In terms of other news announcements, we have Michael B. Jordan, you know, hit actor of 2018. He's just forever going to be that on the on on the podcast. You know, my my prediction for uh, up and coming star of 2018. Uh, he's cast in in a new movie called Methuselah. Scott, what is what are your thoughts on this? This is such a perplexing concept of a movie for me, as most mostly because it's described as an action adventure thriller, and like this movie is about the oldest man in biblical history who Methuselah who was 979 years old before he died, um, which, you know, was why I commented to you upon hearing this news that I'm going to be very interested to see the makeup in this movie, um, how exactly they can make Michael B. Jordan look 979. If, if, you know, that is part of the story is going to be something to see, but unless I, you know, haven't uh, read my Bible very closely, I don't remember, you know, parts where Methuselah was like, kicking the butts of Philistines or anything like that. So I'm not really sure what this is going to draw on. Uh, but Tony Gilroy is an interesting director and he's, you know, the, the one behind this project. It's stuff like Michael Clayton, you know, he, he was, was, you know, probably one of his most known works to date and it's a very good film, I think. But, I, you know, obviously I'll, I'll be interested to see it because of Michael B. Jordan's name, but just the very nature of this project seems kind of odd at this point. I think the action we'll be, we'll see how this movie revises itself over time, but the action adventure element may come from the fact that Michael B. Jordan is actually replacing Tom Cruise, I, I believe, uh, in the top, in the titular role here. So I, I don't know if that changes your perspective on things, but the fact that he's replacing Tom Cruise leads me to believe that the the makeup of this movie and the fundamental core of this movie might in fact also change with Michael B. Jordan being at the center rather than Tom Cruise. Well, now I'm kind of bummed. You know how I love Tom Cruise. Well, more news to come, and I imagine this movie is several years off. I mean, Tom Cruise, I think, was attached to this movie back in 2016. So, yeah, it's been three years since then. Who knows if this movie will even get off the ground ever. This is how good Tom Cruise is as an action star, that he constantly gets cast, even though he, like, doesn't match the description of the character at all, right? Like, Methuselah was probably not a white guy. Yeah, but Jesus was a white guy, Scott. I mean, everyone knows that everyone in ancient times was a white guy. So, But also, I, I'm thinking about how he got cast in Jack Reacher when Jack Reacher is like 6'6 six, six or 6'7, six, you know, it described in every book as being like this tall, hulking man. And yet you pick literally the shortest actor, this side of like Vern Troyer to play Jack Reacher. It was kind of strange, but it just shows, you know, why wouldn't you want Tom Cruise to be in your action movie? He's great. Killian Murphy. He's joining the cast of the A Quiet Place sequel. We, of course, know that John Krasinski, I guess spoilers are, are all fair game at this point on this movie, that John Krasinski does die at the end of A Quiet Place. Uh, you know, maybe maybe Emily Blunt has found a new bow in Killian Murphy. But Scott, what do you think of this casting? What, where do you think he's going to fit in in this universe? Since we know that Emily Blunt and the children will be a main part of the sequel. It's not going to be a, a you know another movie in the same universe. It's going to be a direct sequel. Well, I think you might be onto something with saying, you know, this is could be Emily Blunt's new new love interest because I did see sort of a follow-up to this tweet. I, Jeff Snyder had the original tweet, and then he also followed up to it later saying that, you know, Murphy's character was going to be somebody who joins the, quote, like, family unit, I believe is how he described it, which, you know, I'm assuming is 
you know, Emily Blunt and Millicent Simmons and, you know, the rest of the family. And so, yeah, I think you, you may be onto something there with, uh, you know, with him being a love interest, but, you know, either way, he's obviously going to be drawn into the, you know, the family unit that we got to know in the first movie in some sort of way, it seems. Yeah, you know, I'm into it. I love Killian Murphy. I haven't seen all of Peaky Blinders, but I've really enjoyed him in what I have seen. And I, I like his turns in a lot of the movies that he's been in. Yeah, definitely. He's he's an interesting actor. He, you know, challenges himself, I think, in a lot of different roles. So this will be good. Yep, absolutely. And I'm I'm still just curious, uh, if not a morbid curiosity of what this movie will do. I just still think this is, this is a sequel that totally just doesn't need to happen. But I'm curious what direction they will take in, the, in this movie and if it will be good. All right. D- you know, in, in a movie where I, you know, I'm more than just morbidly curious what it's going to be like. We have Joel Cohen's new version of Macbeth. We have some casting news on this. And that is Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand will be playing the lead roles in this new version of Macbeth. Scott being produced and distributed by A24. I know this has to be getting you excited. Yeah, you're saying a lot of uh, magic words for me there in that description. Uh, I'm a huge Shakespeare buff, so like obviously any sort of Shakespeare project is going to you know pique my interest. But you know when you combine two amazing actors, like two of the best actors in the game, like bar none, with with Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, a very accomplished director in Joel Cohen, and you know a distributor in A24 who has put out some of the most uh, interesting movies of the last decade. This is going to be something to behold whenever we do get this movie. Um, and I guess my main interest at this point is just to see uh, what sort of a spin Joel Cohen puts on Macbeth. Cause I just can't imagine that it's going to be, this is going to be a straightforward, you know, telling of the Macbeth story. I think there's going to be some sort of different interpretation on it. So I guess my question now is just what that will be, but you can bet I'll be there in the theaters regardless of what it'll be. Yeah, absolutely. But both of these, you know, both this actor and this actress in, in, in Washington and McDormand are too old to play traditional Macbeth and Lady Macbeth here. So I'm very interested in, to see what version of the story is going to be told, because, of course, Scott, you know this, and I'm sure our listeners know as well. Macbeth is a tale of someone who is young and successful, not a who is over the hump, so to speak. And, and both of these actors are at the latter stages of their career. Yeah, I mean, that's that's very true. But, you know, there's been so many Shakespearean adaptations over the years that, uh, you know, play with what we know that um, I don't think it's it's a great hurdle for them to overcome. Just think about Baz Luhrmann's god-awful version of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, t- no, to- totally agree. <laughs> I, I don't think the uh, a new spin or a slightly different perspective on a story is lacking. I, I think if it's done the right way, it can often be the best form of, of a Shakespearean movie, right? Unless you're going to go all out like something like Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. Sometimes you're, you're probably not too well served by sticking straight to the source material. And, and it's such an onerous task to do something like Branagh did with Hamlet. Yeah, definitely. So last bit of news, Scott, it's impossible to go a week without talking about Avengers Endgame. This past week, we we didn't get any new footage, I don't think, but we did get some new posters. We got, in fact, 32 new posters, character posters, that is, released 16 of them, of course, in color, 16 in black and white, symbolizing those who fell, or I should say, those who did not survive the snap and those who did survive the snap. Scott, did this hype you up even more for Endgame? Did it give you any insider knowledge that might have been a gray area no pun intended from the end of in, uh, from the end of infinity war what what are your takes on these new posters 
Uh, you know, I can't say I have strong feelings one way or the other about these posters. I will say that I, I did get a good chuckle out of some of them. Just the sight of like Happy Hogan or like Rocket Raccoon just with these like deadly serious expressions and saying avenge the fallen on the poster. It's just kind of ridiculous that a lot of people have been making, you know, light of these ones and saying, well, what what if Happy Hogan ends up being the last person? Like all the Avengers die, but Happy Hogan is the one who ultimately defeats Thanos. Uh, and then I saw somebody else who said like, that imagine sh somebody doesn't know anything about the MCU and you just show them that Rocket Raccoon poster. Uh, I, I imagine they would probably uh, be quite confused. Uh, so, I mean, I guess there are a, a few little clues in there about, you know, some people who survived the snap that maybe we weren't totally sure uh, about yet. Yeah. But, I, you know, this, this did, wasn't earth-shaking for me. I'm adamant that Marvel is not going to release any information. They don't explicitly want you or feel comfortable with you knowing before this movie comes out. The fact that we were confirmed that someone like Shuri didn't survive the snap or someone like Happy Hogan did survive the snap is not critical information to Endgame. And if it was, they wouldn't tell us about it. And they've pretty much said that they're not going to do that either, right? I mean, that's why they said we're only going to show scenes from the first 20 minutes of the movie or whatever in the trailers, although they might have broken that in the last movie. But, I mean, they've pretty much been said, look, we're not going to give anything away. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you're probably right. Although what, what I've heard is an interesting take is that some of the scenes that seem like they are further along in the movie for Endgame that aren't in the first 20 minutes are just scenes that they've cut from the movie and aren't actually in the <laughs> movie, which would be a sneaky way to get around that. I mean, it is a three hour movie, too. So, I mean, what did they cut out to make it a three hour movie? I mean, how, I want I want the Snyder cut for this. So, oh, my gosh. So. The Russo brothers cut. I, I'm just going to say this, Scott, like, I don't know how much Marvel typically cuts in terms of deleted scenes from their movies, but if they have a significant amount of film that's beyond this three hour cut, I think they'd be out of their GD mind to not release that. They'd oh, make yeah. so much money off by off an extended cut of this movie. Yeah, I mean, I would not be surprised if we if we got one someday because, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there is more out there. Yeah, I have no idea how much of it is. I mean, if it's only like five or ten minutes, then, you know, you throw the, delete, the deleted scenes on the special fe special features disc or the iTunes extra or whatever and be done with it. But if we're talking a significant, I mean, I've heard that they have more than an hour of, of footage. The, the very first cut of the movie was four hours long. And if that's the case, they are stupid if they don't release that. Plot twist. The additional footage is actually just a bunch of Stan Lee cameos that they couldn't work into the movie. Honestly, they'd still be stupid if they didn't release that. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, people, I'd buy that. I'm not, I'm not kidding. I'd buy that. That's yeah. awesome. All right, Scott. I think that will just about do it for episode 36 of Some Like It, Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Uh, I'm just glad you didn't ask me about March Madness. I mean, that's not like I want to talk about it right now anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, we're both in mourning. Yeah, yeah. where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, I'm at Scarvy Dent. Awesome. And that can be found at Ada Shelton 2013 over on Twitter. Neither of us will be talking about March Madness, or at least not as much as, as uh, well, we, I should say, Scott once was. It's officially baseball season now. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I will say you were tweeting aggressively the other day about opening day, which, you know, to be fair, opening day, it's a big day. But I was like, man, March Madness is still going on. What's he doing taking up tweeting space for, for baseball? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the first time in recent memory where, like, Baseball has started, like, and the Sweet 16 hadn't even happened yet. So it was kind of in an interesting time. Well, more importantly than, than Scott or my Twitter account, you can find our podcast on Twitter, and that's at Media Plug Pods. And we'd love it even more if you checked out our Patreon page. That's our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods. There are a bunch of different reward tiers over there, depending on how much you're willing to pledge to the podcast. We'd appreciate it if you 
even even if you just contributed to the one dollar level, we'd we we would really appreciate it. And that's again at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. Check it out for yourself. Pick the tier that's right for you. That that would be really, really helpful for us. And if you choose not to support us, that's okay. That's totally fine. You can still find us on po- Apple Podcasts and on Podbean, where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, as well as subscribed and shared. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. Next week, we'll be back reviewing the DCEU's next film following the wild global box office success of Aquaman, and that is Shazam. For now, however, that'll be all from us. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Mm